You're listening to The Bloodline with LLS. We'll be joined by experts who will help us understand current issues and resources available to those diagnosed with blood cancer. Holidays and, you know, those things are, are, mean so much more now than they did prior to cancer entering our lives. This may potentially be a cure for some patients. We'll also be speaking with patients and caregivers who will share their cancer journey with us to better understand life after diagnosis and let you know you're not alone. Beforehand, my job was to earn a living for my family. My wife said to me, your job now is to live. And that's what I'm doing. I'm living my life the way I want to live it, and I'm really enjoying it. It's a much more fulfilling life. Let's get started. Welcome to The Bloodline with LLS. I'm Edith. And I'm Lizette. Thank you so much for joining us on this episode. Every year, Stupid Cancer hosts an annual conference for young adults affected by cancer called CancerCon. In this conference, patients, caregivers, and healthcare professionals all join together and participate in various panels, workshops, and engaging social activities. Today, we will be speaking with Dr. Meredith Hemphill Rudin, who had a very informative session called Parenting with Cancer. Dr. Meredith Hemphill Rudin is a licensed clinical social worker, doctor of social welfare, and is the executive director for the Feather Foundation, a nonprofit organization for parents who have cancer. She teaches within the social work program at New York University and has acted as a guest editor for the Clinical Social Work Journal for a special issue on social work and healthcare and contributed research and writing on the topic of hope-centered work with cancer patients. Welcome, Dr. Rudin. Thank you for having me. Hi, guys. Hi, welcome. Now, before we get into today's topic, Parenting with Cancer, we want to get to know a little bit about our speaker, and we definitely like for our listeners to get to know them as well. So what led you to your profession and starting the Feather Foundation? That is such a great question, and it is sort of a winding road for me. I decided to go back to school for social work. I thought I wanted to work with kids helping them actually through difficult situations, which relates to what I ended up doing and am doing right now with the Feather Foundation. And as I was preparing to go back to school, I actually got a diagnosis of melanoma, so a skin cancer. I remember very vividly finding out the news. I was actually with my dad on a vacation and my siblings. And at that time, I was trying to understand what lay ahead. It sounded like I didn't have a lot of information to begin with. And so for about a week before I found out more and found out next steps, I was wondering really what this meant. And afterwards, too, when I got the surgery that I needed to get done, I started to see the need for adults who are going through cancer treatment, needing additional support and counseling to get through something difficult like coping with cancer. Now, in my case, I had the surgery and I didn't need any follow-up care except for meeting with my dermatologist every six months. And I have been cancer-free for over 10 years. But as I was going back to school and thinking about the help I wanted to provide and the impact I wanted to have, I started to think about working with people who have cancer. And I worked in a hospital through my schooling. And afterwards, I worked in other hospitals and cancer organizations. 
And through that, I noticed the different needs. At first, I started off with this idea, just generally speaking, if I just want to learn more, place me wherever you will within a cancer center in an outpatient environment, you know, when people are getting chemo or radiation or inpatient, I'm just a sponge. But I started to notice that there were definitely some areas that were more covered and there was more support in some areas where there are not, and that could be by a cancer diagnosis, that could be by your circumstance coming into the cancer center or the organization. So one thing I noticed and I had been thinking about continually since that time and since that beginning is what's available for parents who have cancer. So not just the kids who are dealing with a parent's diagnosis, and there was actually some support around that. I was lucky to find great organizations like CLIMB and Cancer Care had some support for kids, helping them talk about their parents' cancer diagnosis and also work through some of those thoughts and feelings around it. And it would often involve the parent, but the parent wasn't necessarily the focus. And mulling over those thoughts for many years, I eventually became a parent myself. I now have a seven-year-old and a five-year-old. And it just communicated to me all the more, gosh, here I am thinking a lot about my children's welfare and how I can be the best possible parent I can be, most attentive I can be. And I am stressed by the everyday things. What must it be like for somebody who on top of all of that is going through cancer treatment, who is concerned for themselves? And of course, and this is something I've heard again and again from parents who have cancer, they weren't just concerned for themselves, concerned for their kids because so much of getting through this, the focus is not just about oneself, but how we as a family are going to get through this. So that was the beginning of the Feather Foundation. I was fortunate along the way to work and be friends with a lot of wonderful people in the cancer care space. And some of them really supported me as I started to think about this idea of creating the Feather Foundation. And it doesn't mention cancer because it's named after an Emily Dickinson quote and poem about hope. So we are all about hope for parents with cancer. And the quote is, hope is a thing with feathers that perches in the soul. So we think that's a really important message to help families find hope through this cancer thing. So anyway, I was very fortunate to have friends and colleagues who supported the idea I had to focus on this group that came together and have a commonality that isn't type of cancer, but it's the fact that they're coming to cancer with some extra stuff, some extra stressors. And that board now is part of the Feather Foundation. Those friends, many of them are on our board, and we're so fortunate to have that be the case. We have an oncologist, my dear friend, Michelle Myers. We have people who have been working in other major cancer organizations, and they're all these wonderful people who have this combination of personal and professional experience. Wow, I love that quote. And it's really interesting how you named your foundation. That's great. Oh, thank you. On our Bloodline homepage, we have a quote and it says, after a diagnosis comes mm. hope. So mm -hmm. I think it's very important that all of us are really trying to get together 
and let people know that there is hope. Mm -hmm. Absolutely, there is. I'm very direct about what that hope is. When I say hope, it's not necessarily hope that just, of course, we want to get through this wholly bodily and, you know, be able to say that cancer thing was in my distant past. But I think as a secondary thing and area to focus on, it's hope that your family and you can get through this emotionally and be stronger. So that's the hope too. It's not just hope that cancer will be in your past shortly, but it's also that you will be able to walk away from this feeling like it is a victory emotionally for you and your family. Definitely. Also, congrats on being cancer-free for 10 years. Oh, thank you. It's actually 13 <laughs> years. I realized I can't believe how the time has flown. Yeah. And it's interesting how it's changed when after this time, it does feel like a long time ago. But also every time I go back to the dermatologist, I kind of am thrown right back to, you know, wondering if I'm going to have something that they need to test or biopsy. So it's something that, you know, I'm still getting used to in a way, even though it's 13 years ago. <laughs> of course. So during the virtual session that you had in CancerCon, you mentioned that according to the American Cancer Society in 2016, about 3 million children live with an adult with cancer in the U.S., which mm -hmm. to me is very overwhelming. And I came and process how overwhelming that may be to a parent. So mm -hmm. what advice would you give to parents when they have to explain a diagnosis to their child? Well, I think I mentioned that number just to communicate that you're not alone. And it is more common than you think. I think we think of cancer often as something that is for people when they get older. And that just isn't the case. And there are unfortunately a lot of kids living in households where there is a cancer diagnosis. When I talk to parents about this, it's important to remind them that there are people like them often trying to make the best of a really difficult situation and they might not yet know that there is a community out there for them so i think at first that's part of the mission of the feather foundation actually is to say we see you and you're not alone in this we don't assume because historically parents haven't said listen let's talk about this issue we don't assume that we know everything there is to know about the complications associated to being a parent with cancer. But we're here to give some helpful guidance and also learn from the parents. So what do we say to parents who have cancer? We say to them, take care of yourself first. Make sure that you're adjusted to your diagnosis as much as you can be in the early days. You don't have to rush from hearing that you have a diagnosis to working out what you're going to tell your kids. Having said that, you know, we do suggest that if you have things coming up like an appointment for treatment and something's going to change in your routine pretty quickly, that you want to keep your kids informed. And then there are all of these other pieces to consider at that point. What do you say to your kids? And that depends on their stage of development, what you know they understand about cancer. Maybe they have known someone who's a family or a friend who's had cancer. 
you can think about what words to use. Some people actually use the word cancer, some don't. It's certainly easier if you use the word that they might hear elsewhere attached to this. But certainly if you have a four-year-old and you think that, you know what, it's not needed right now to use that word, you might decide not to. When you decide what to talk to them about, you remind yourself that you're the expert on them. What do you think your kid can handle and how can they handle that? And, you know, I think about my two kids and I would say they are very different in how I would communicate to them when they were at the same age. Having said that, though, I also keep in mind that if I were to tell them something like I have cancer, they would be talking to each other. So I would have to find something that worked for both of them to talk about and how I talk about that. And then parents with cancer often want to know how to deal with tough feelings that might be attached to the news that their kids are hearing that they have cancer. But I often remind them, actually, you know what, you can normalize it. You can say it's okay to be sad or mad or worried, but often that doesn't come up in the first conversation. Often it's just the basic information that you provide and you try to connect it with changes and things that matter to them. So it might be, you know, you're preparing for chemo and you might be losing your hair. Well, that's a change that might matter to your kid, a change in your appearance. So you prepare them for that. So you kind of think about what could be important to them. And any other thing that might be, of course, is very important for them is just to let them know that you're here to talk to them, that you're here to support them. And that in terms of you being that parent that supports and loves, nothing has changed. And I think that's really important to communicate in some way too. So that's often what parents with cancer come to me talking about. But I've got to say what they don't ask for is also really important, which is the piece on self-care for them. Really making sure because they probably along this road will be facing some additional stress that they are prioritizing their health and well-being, and I mean their emotional health too, and giving themselves permission to take breaks, to not try to replicate the kind of parenting they were doing before cancer, which might mean that they don't do all of the school drop-offs, or in this case, in the pandemic, you know, all the oversight of remote learning or things like that. Why? Because they need to give themselves the best chance of getting through this with rest and strength and also a reserve of energy should bumps come up in the road for themselves or for their kids and family. Sure. And I just wanted to go back and really commend you on on really saying, you know, we see you and actually providing this kind of support for parents. You said that there was a lot of support out there already for kids and children, and usually that's what we think of. And especially as a parent, usually you always think of the children first. Mm -hmm. But actually knowing that that parent also has support needs, I think that's very important. I know that in the cancer space, we've been talking to patients all this time, trying to provide them with so much support. And most of the time, we haven't really provided the same type of support for their caregivers. Mm -hmm. And now is when we're recognizing that, oh my gosh, 
our patients' caregivers are also going through this journey. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately, they've been overlooked for so long. And we're trying to provide that support to them. But you actually coming out and knowing that the person with cancer really needs that support at this time, not just as a patient, but as a member of the family, like you're describing. Right. I mean, basically what you're saying is here's the unique situation, but it's really true where you're dealing with someone who's a patient and a caregiver at the same time. Yeah. And I know that, Edith, you told me that during Meredith's conference, you had said that Meredith cited the airplane when you're on an airplane. Yes, she said the same thing the airplane rules have, which is you strap on your oxygen mask first, and then you strap on the child. It's a great metaphor for parents and me, who's not even a parent, to understand. Yeah, I'm so glad you brought that up because it's really, I think, right up there with one of our biggest messages at the Feather Foundation is that you need to trying to redefine what a good parent is in this situation and saying, here's the situation that if you don't help yourself get through it, like the oxygen mask, right? Where if you don't put the oxygen mask on first, you're going to pass out and then your child can't get theirs on. And so it is a way to make sure you both have the best opportunity to get through something that is, you know, can be a crisis. So I use that all the time because I think with this kind of crisis, this kind of issue that you're dealing with when you have cancer. I think there's a little bit of the feeling that you need to put the kid's oxygen mask on first because you need to make sure they're okay. And certainly as a parent, I totally understand that. I remember even watching that little video in the airplanes where they said, put yours on first and like there'd be this little surge of that just feels wrong. What about this kid who is in distress, who's right next to me possibly? But it makes more and more sense as I think about the situation for parents with cancer. It just doesn't, it can't in the long term be good for the whole family unit if a parent, say, is running from chemo and is exhausted and feeling so sick just to pick up their kid from school and so doesn't have a chance to rest and rejuvenate. And yet I think that's happening all over the place. Or even more drastically, making decisions about one's care based on what works for child care. First and foremost, it needs to be to make the best decisions for your health and your own well-being in order that in the long term, this can be something that is done with and kids are resilient and can be moved on from. I mean, and I know we only have control of so much, but that's the best shot of getting through something like a crisis, like being in an airplane where you need an oxygen mask. So as a parent, how do you work through that guilt, though? Because mm. you feel so much guilt that you're going to take care of yourself before your child, and you want to take care of your child before yourself, their needs before yours. How do you work through that? That's such a good question. It's such a good question. It's so hard. I don't know if there's a simple answer to this, but let me give you some ideas. One thing I notice is there's guilt because there's a feeling almost like you're responsible for your child's difficulty. And I want to say really clearly, 
your child, even if they're upset and mad and worried because of your cancer, you did not cause them that pain. You did not cause them that upset. So that's something that I think is important. It's not like you made it your plan to do this. You are both struggling through something that has happened to you. So even if your kid is dealing with tough feelings around this, please remember that. I think that's a really important point because then all of a sudden there's no guilt. You can feel empathy for your child for going through something difficult, but it's not something that I would argue sort of unfairly to yourself, you know, and in a way that doesn't give you the kindness you deserve are saying to yourself, you're to blame. So I think that's important. I think it's important, again, to have this community that tells you and reminds you it is okay to prioritize yourself in this situation. And it's not even okay, it's needed. I know you guys, one of the questions you had for me was, about being a super mom or dad, because that is something that I mentioned also in this talk at CancerCon. I talked about what does a great parent look like when you're going through cancer? And actually, we mention in the Feather Foundation being a super mom or dad to kind of shift the thinking from you have to do it all to it is okay to not do it all. Instead of quantity of time, quality of time to tell parents with cancer and remind them again and again, it's okay to say, I can't do more. In fact, sometimes that's the wisest move. So in one of the tip sheets we have for the Feather Foundation, we actually go over what is it being a super parent with cancer look like? It looks like taking care of yourself. What else does it look like? It looks like actually thinking ahead and maybe getting some other people on board to help your kids get picked up from school and go to soccer and do all the things that they normally did. So you're not just doing it by yourself, but you are being the essence of a good parent there because you're making sure your kid has it. And it doesn't have to always be provided by you. And sometimes it can't be provided by you. So I think in terms of dealing with the guilt and processing the guilt, it sometimes comes down to hearing a totally refreshing and different view, which is, you know, please don't do it all yourself. Please say no sometimes to some of those old parenting responsibilities you used to put on yourself. Get other people on board and focus on quality of time with your kids and making that attentive, loving experience rather than every moment of the day trying to provide everything for them. Sure. And you mentioned before that every child is different and that's how you would speak to your child about cancer, you know, really trying to figure out what's best for each child. I know that some folks don't feel comfortable telling their children that they have cancer. So is there a right way or a wrong way? Or is it really dependent on somebody's situation or the personality of your child? I'll be honest, to begin with, I followed a lot of the literature saying, if you can use the word cancer and and do that as soon as possible. And I really thought that was the best way to go about it. Because it got rid of ambiguity. It avoided situations possibly in the future where maybe your kid is in class and another child mentions, oh, you know, something that they've heard that they, you know, and says the word cancer for the first time, something like that. So I thought it could avoid possible situations in the future. Having said that, I've spoken to more and more parents about 
seeing the other way, like thinking about their child's associations with the word cancer and whether they might have a negative association with it and therefore they just want to talk to them about their treatment more and the goal of their treatment. So them thinking that this allowed their child to process and um, understand their cancer without using the big C word. And, you know, I think there could be a reason to not use that word. You know, maybe you have a fairly early stage diagnosis. And frankly, part of your self-care is wanting to focus on your own ability to get through this. And if you know that your child is grappling with something that all of a sudden they think is bigger than it in fact is, that will make it harder for you. So that can be an argument for talking to them, but maybe talking to them really about the logistics of care and not talking about the diagnosis in medical terms. So that is what I mean by knowing your child and what they can handle and what they need. But I think it's important to also acknowledge that part of this decision-making mix might be your own feelings and adjustment to the word cancer and you're grappling with that and your comfort with that. So making sure you're not making a decision for your child based on your own, you know, totally understandable difficulties with coming to terms with your own diagnosis. Sure. And also the child's age has a lot to do with how much mm-hmm. and how you speak to them, correct? Oh, yeah. You know, if you have a three-year-old, they might not even understand um, if you give them a lot of information up front, but they certainly will notice if you lose hair or if you have a mastectomy, something that's a physical change. So maybe that's the information you share with your three-year-old. If it's a 15-year-old, you'll give more information. You'll give more context. So yeah, age matters a lot understanding matters a lot too. If you have a precocious five-year-old, you know, even though another five-year-old might not want to know medical jargon, your five-year-old might want to. So age does matter, but it also matters, you know, sort of what you understand about your child and what they'll want to know and sort of anticipating it as best you can. However, having said that, you can't anticipate it all. So to a certain extent, you have to go with the flow and just be ready to answer those questions that they might have. So it's useful sometimes to have in your mind an idea of what you will talk to your kid about and how you will navigate questions and even rehearse that beforehand. I think that's always a really good idea. But also you have to be a little bit prepared to think on your feet because it might be a week or two weeks later that you get that question that you were expecting the first time. Sure. And what if as a cancer patient, as a parent, you're in the hospital away from your child or with blood cancers, there's many patients that get stem cell transplantations that may have to be away. How do you still stay connected to the rest of the family? We actually have a tip sheet. We actually have a tip sheet on this at the Feather Foundation's website, thefeatherfoundation.org, and it's about staying connected, exactly what you said 
while in isolation. And it is really, thank goodness we live in the time of FaceTime and all of that. You can stay connected to a certain extent. You can't be with your kid in person, but you can certainly talk to them throughout the day. Maybe you can even talk to them, not even like a phone conversation, downloading your day, but watch a movie with them via FaceTime to have that sense that you're with them and you're present there. So you can stay connected that way. You can write each other notes and letters. You can ask to be part of just the news of the everyday things in their life. You could send them little care packages of some sort. You can read them a bedtime story. So I think you can create rituals, either new rituals, or you can repeat old ones even remotely. And that's a way to stay connected for sure. But it's totally a understandable that you might feel regardless disconnected from your child. It's not the same as being in person. And to that, I would say it's normal. It's understandable. Acknowledge it. Feel those feelings and know that this will be something that you will go through and can be a chapter in your life and in your child's life that won't at all define sort of your sense of connection with them overall. So I think that's the fear, like that you feel disconnected and that feeling of disconnection will continue on. No, this might be something that just is for now and it is for now for a good reason. Sure. And I know that you mentioned some of the questions that you hear from parents, but are there other common questions that you hear? Oh my goodness. There are so many questions about really how to talk about bodily changes. A lot of questions about those, you know, in preparing for things like hair loss and mastectomy. There's a lot of questions about how to describe to a very young child that the reason for the hair loss might be actually because the medicine is doing its job. And to explain that bodily changes don't actually mean you're getting sicker, but actually might be getting better. And to that, I would say there's some great children's books out there. You can just look online to check them out. There are ones that give great analogies that help explain how it can be that something that's medicine can make these changes in your body, but are a sign that the medicine's working. And I think that's really sort of a common misunderstanding young children have that parents ask me about. So I have it about questions about that. I have questions about also, if your cancer gets worse, so you prepared your child for one round of treatment and your doctor says unexpectedly another one's needed or even just that your cancer has advanced, how do you then have this conversation again with your child and say, actually, things have changed? And to that, I would say it's the same sort of thing. First of all, how are you doing? How are you feeling about it? I love this Mr. Rogers quote, anything that is mentionable is manageable. So put words to it, say what's going on if you can, because when you put words to it, you give it the potential to be manageable for your child. I love that Mr. Rogers quote. He's Mm -hmm. truly a wonderful human being. (laughs) So we covered a lot in this episode, but is there anything you feel we didn't cover today that you think is important for our audience to hear? One thing that I'd like to also mention is I think anybody who is going something like cancer treatment and is a parent, 
will feel, and it's understandable, is that their cancer diagnosis and treatment will mean that there are losses that are incurred with a sense of connection with their child, or there will be bumps along the road. So there are challenges and there are losses that happen if you're a parent with cancer. But one thing I want to mention also is I think there's a huge opportunity to grow as a parent and for your children to grow here too. And how does that happen? Just simply in really focusing instead on trying to do it all, but actually thinking a lot about how to be attentive and for your child right now. Think about your child as an individual and what they need. Sometimes in the busyness of our lives, we don't think about that kind of stuff. But when it comes down to it, I think that's what's most important. So it might be something that really makes you focus on that quality time in a way you haven't done for a long time. And in that way, you can grow together. So I think it's clearer that I have that hopeful outlook that the Feather Foundation is all about. But I really do believe it. It's not just about losses and challenges. There might be something beautiful that comes out of this as well. Thank you. Very well said. And thank you, Meredith, for joining us today and sharing your expertise with us and our listeners. Oh, you're so welcome. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. For more information about the Feather Foundation, please go to www.thefeatherfoundation.org. And for those who would like more information about LLS in general, you can contact our information specialist Monday through Friday, 9 a.m. to 9 p.m. Eastern Time by calling 1-800-955-4572. And they can provide support and educational information. Thanks for listening to The Bloodline with LLS. We can be found on iTunes and other great podcatchers. You can subscribe at www.thebloodline.org. Be sure to check out our archive section on our website for previous podcasts. Be sure to rate and review us on iTunes. Keep up with LLS by following us on Twitter at LLSUSA and Facebook at the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society. Until next time.